Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In her latest book, Wealth Supremacy, How the Extractive Economy and the Biased Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises, Marjorie Kelly argues for the democratization of ownership, public ownership of vital services, worker-owned businesses, and more. And she reimagines the very foundations of our economy and society. It's a culmination of her 30 years of work as a journalist, theorist, and consultant. The book is published by Barrett Kohler. It brings Marjorie Kelly, who is a distinguished senior fellow at the Democracy Collaborative, to our show now. Welcome. Yes, thanks for having me, Leonard. Oh, this is important stuff. You write that when it comes to inequalities, climate change biodiversity loss and rising authoritarianism, the problem lies within the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And you'll notice that's not what we're talking about, Leonard. I, you know, and by the system, I mean an economy designed to serve the wealthy few. And it's doing a pretty good, pretty good job of that. And, uh, of course, it's capturing politics as well and preventing change and climate change and and causing households are under the squeeze, too much debt, too little income. So all of that we can really trace to a large extent to to the system that we have and the way it's designed. But, you know, as I said, this is not something we're talking about. You know, we're talking about abortion, which was settled 50 years ago, or we're talking about... Well, it hasn't been settled, obviously. Well, right, but it's it's been brought up again. So, you know, I think that the hard right is is masterful at changing the subject from what really, what we should be talking about. Are you arguing that we have to reinvent our economic system? I am. And, and I'm saying that not as, oh, oh gosh, this is Marjorie Kelly's big idea, but, you know, we're in serious trouble on, on so many fronts, and uh, we have to move to a new system. We, we, can't, we can't continue to move forward with a system designed to make maximum extraction of wealth for a few. It's just, uh, it's causing too many troubles, and it's not, it's not going to sustain us. But state socialism isn't the answer either, as far as you're concerned? You know, we have this funny idea, Leonard, that that our that our choices are binary, right? It's either capitalism or socialism, and, and both of those are are over a hundred years old in terms of concepts. We're we're in the twenty first century, so at the Democracy Collaborative, we we say what we need is a democratic economy. We need a fully democratic society that's designed for all of us to flourish on a living planet. And, um, you know, we can do that. The models that we need are emerging all around us. I mean, what you call it, you know, I don't know if people will, if, if this language will win out, but it's what we call it because we think it speaks to the issue of power and where the power lies and where it should lie, which is in, which is with all of us. Well, you write about wealth supremacy, which is a bias toward the few, uh, but the 1% don't create wealth. They just extract it, Right. Isn't that interesting? Yes, thank you for saying that. I mean, the very language we use in our economy is biased. I mean, we yes, we say that investors create wealth. Well, by and large, no. It's it's about extracting wealth. 
And uh, once we see that's what's going on, uh, my hope is that that the system will will lose some legitimacy. I think that's that's the power that we the people hold is 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 legitimacy. And once a system loses legitimacy, it's in trouble. You list what you argue are the basic myths that underlie wealth supremacy, and you say that they're the hidden forces behind economic injustice, climate crisis, many of our other problems. Uh, you have seven of them. I'm not sure we should go through all of them, but you, do you want to talk about what they are and and uh, how they relate to what we're discussing? Sure. Yeah, I'll go through a few of these, and I'll start Leonard by saying, you know, I feel like I've been a spy in the house of business for 30 years. <clears throat> I ran a small business for 20 years. I've been a, a journalist covering progressive business and investing. So I know I've done a lot of lecturing at business schools. I know the game very well. And what I'm doing in this book, Wealth Supremacy, you know, first of all, I'm naming it is something different. Wealth supremacy, mm. right? That's We know that's not a legitimate uh, a bias. Uh, I, I have not heard that phrase before. Yeah, it's a new one. I'm, I'm introducing it. What I'm hoping it does is, is, is helps us understand what's actually going on. And, and then I unpack in the book, and I do this, I'm told it's, it's very accessible. It's not a technical book. It's not for experts. But I, I'm, if you know, if you feel a system is rigged, you're right. It is. And I show some examples of how. And the first myth that I talk about is myth of maximizing. Mm -hmm that uh, corporations exist to maximize wealth for shareholders. Which no amount know, of wealth is ever enough, you say. That's right. That's the myth. No amount of wealth is ever enough. You know, no matter how many billions you have, you invest it and you, and you want still more billions. I mean, that's absurd, right? Mm -hmm. So that that's the first myth. And that's the one that the whole system is built around, that no amount of wealth is ever enough. So, so how is that enacted? Well, for example, in corporate governance, which is how corporations are, you know, their, their, their big decisions are made, their board, board of directors, workers are not considered members of the corporation. Mm. You can go just there. Just the hired help. Just, just the hired help, just a tool to be used to create wealth for somebody else, which is the capital owners. But it's only capital that has a vote inside a corporation. Mm -hmm. I mean, this might be a hedge fund and they've held shares for 20 minutes, but they have power and, and vote and workers who go there every day and do its work for 30 years, they have no voice. And we just accept that as normal. That's that's a bias. It's a bias toward capital. So that that's two examples. And so let me give you one well, more. Well, another one that uh, seems to be a subject of great debate these days is the myth of income statement, where income to capital must always be increased while income to labor must always be decreased. Yes, you're right. That That's a very important one. And that's built into the income statement. And that, you know, people may not uh, understand what that is, but it's a simple lens through which every company views its activity. And what uh, it's a lens that just says you have money coming in, you have, that's revenue, you have money going out, that's expenses, and what's left over is profit, right? Well, in, invisibly embedded in that is the bias that says profit is good, you have to drive it up, that's income to shareholders, to capital holders. 
worker income is called expense and that's bad and you have to drive it down and, and that's why we've been seeing uh, strikes in any number of industries recently yeah that's right workers are saying wait a minute you know we don't come last and and wait a minute we are going to get a voice and we're going to get it through through unions um so yes this is it's wonderful to see these successes in, in union organizing and the new the new pact that we're seeing in the auto industry workers are saying no we deserve some power we deserve some voice and that's that's what it means to have a democratic economy and what's the role of government in all of this uh is it you say that it's the role that the first duty of government according to this thinking must be protection of private property does that matter whether it's a democratic or republican administration well that's an interesting question but yes in the conservative tradition uh the first and and primary role of government is to to protect property or what today we call wealth and also to defend the country that's what conservatives think government is about and i think you know small d those of us who believe in democracy no matter what political party we say no the purpose of government is is to serve the public good and to serve to serve all of us but i do think that we have been caught in uh, an economic mindset that says protecting wealth is super important think about the 2008 meltdown right you had these big banks they did predatory mortgages they basically took the equity from people's homes most much of it uh, people of color and and so who got bailed out the big banks got bailed out these terrible loans they made got made whole and people lost their homes and so that's an example of government serving uh serving wealth and and letting ordinary people suffer and the seventh myth you list is the myth of the free market. Yeah, right. You say there so, should be no limits on the field of action of corporations and capital? Yes, I, I like that expression much better. That So, for example, like in trade treaties, you'll notice that the rights that go abroad are protection of, of property, protection of shareholders, and protection of finance. So it's really corporations and capital that has freedom in a free market and protections for labor, protections for the environment. All that is stripped out at, at the border of, of our country and left on the on the cutting room floor. And that's that is the worldview of of capitalism, which the real players are is capital and corporations and everybody else is just a tool to be used to create wealth. Basic so, to the neoliberal system. Yeah, that's right. Neoliberalism is is the uh, political worldview that enacts and, and protects this this system. Well, it's interesting that the word liberal is there, but th isn't this not liberal in terms yeah, of the political left? Yeah, that's one of the confusing parts about that historic use of the word liberal. I mean, I, I like it goes to back say to Britain, I guess. It does, right? And um, I, I, I tend not to use liberal in that sense. I, you know, we're I'm a progressive. I think uh, people who want to see a fair economy, I, I consider us progressives. Yeah. So you say there should be no that the myth of the free market is that there should be no limits on the field of action of corporations and capital. 
Isn't that amazing? Right. So capital and corporations should be left entirely free mm. to do whatever they want in, in, in order to maximize returns for capital holders. And the rest of us, I mean, labor, you know, in, in, in many workplaces, you don't even have the freedom to go to the bathroom when you need to. You don't have the freedom to be to stay home and be sick when you're sick. So, you know, this idea that this is a free market, it's only it's only freedom for a few. And and uh, Amartya Sen, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist, he says the real meaning of freedom is is we need to remove unfreedoms like like poverty and the lack of opportunity. I mean, that's freedom for all of us. That's really what we need. Do you see trends these days because the country has become so polarized? You know, I'm really alarmed by the polarization that I see, and I, I, I lay a good piece of it at the feet of the big tech companies. I mean, you look, for example, at at Facebook or or what used to be called Twitter. You know, and these the algorithms of these they push out the most angry posts. They invite people into groups uh, who share their angry views. And so you have, you know, in the name of of selling ads, in the name of profit maximization and creating wealth for people like Jeff Bezos and 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 Mark Zuckerberg and their investors. Elon Musk. And Elon Musk, right. In order to create their wealth, the rest of us are being set at odds against each other because People click, people click on, on the most incendiary things. I mean, I'm a journalist, you know, and so, and, and so are you, Leonard. I mean, and, you know, I went to journalism school back in the days when journalism was an honorable profession. <laughs> and, you know, you had editors, you had publishers, and this, this, this duty to publish the truth was what it was about. But, you know, we've seen newspapers and magazines fall and struggle because all the advertising has moved online. It's gone into these into these angry um, ex- exchanges. It, it's, it's one of the it's one of the concerns I have. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Marjorie Kelly. Her book, Wealth Supremacy, How the Extractive Economy and the Bias Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises, published by Barrett Kohler. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. What is ESG, Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance? And how does it apply to this discussion? Sure. Uh, Yes. Um, It's a form of investing with your values. That's that's the concept. So um, you consider environmental social governance uh, issues when you make an investment decision. And, and the problem, I mean, ESG is a very good concept. I've, I've been tracking what used to be called socially responsible investing for about 30 years. And this began as really a radical movement uh, to use investing as a power for good and there is there is still that element there it's mostly impact investing and that's a sort of a separate um arm of of this field but ESG has been basically taken over and 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 corrupted uh so that it really means these days maximizing your profits and using ESG criteria in order to do so and that's not what 
That's not what it originally meant or what it should mean. The fossil fuel producers claim they can maintain shareholder primacy and maximum profits for shareholders without destroying the environment. Are, are they promoting climate denial and claiming that they haven't played a role in climate change? You know, I think the whole fossil fuel industry is is really the tip of the sphere of of the failure of the old paradigm. I mean, what we're talking about here, Leonard, is a new paradigm for the economy and for corporations emerging. We need a new way of organizing things. And you can see that with, for example, ExxonMobil and, and other fossil fuel companies in, in 2021, there there were returns to investors were 60% wow. for fossil fuels, right? 60% in one year. And this is at the same time. And, you know, and we have seen in recent times, I mean, the skies over San Francisco were orange with flames. I mean, New York City had flash flooding. New Hampshire was underwater with, with floods. Hawaii has been burning. So while all this is happening, Investors are, are pocketing 60% gains for holding fossil fuel stocks. I mean, that's crazy, right? That that right there is shows us the need for, for a new paradigm. No, the purpose right. of ExxonMobil is not to create maximum returns for shareholders. We, we will have a world on fire if, if that continues. But a uh, former president said that an alternative to petroleum is windmills, kill birds, kill whales, and uh, even now, it uh, doesn't really depend whether you're a Democrat or a Republican as to whether your state uh, has a lot of oil and coal, how you will vote on issues like this? Well, we're at a turning point, Leonard, and it's not – the choices are, are not always clear, and there, there, are, there will be losses, right? I mean, it's very hard – to let go of the current paradigm. I mean, I, I'm one of the people fortunate enough to have some investments. I've got, you know, I've got some investments in in, uh, in the public stock markets. Uh, and, you know, uh, many of your listeners probably do or wish they did. <laughs> you know, in the same way, I've got a furnace in my basement that's burning uh, natural gas, you know, so I, I don't want a fossil fuel based economy and I don't want a capital based economy, but I'm kind of stuck in them as, as many of us are. So, you know, we have to make tough choices. We have to build the paths ahead that will work. I mean, I'll, I'll say for Biden that he he passed this really significant uh, legislation that is incentivizing uh, green green energy and uh it's not you know we're not m moving as fast as we could be i know some wind projects are being canceled a, a lot of it because of inflation and, and high interest rates but nonetheless i mean we need to keep paving paving the paths to the future that we need well private equity has been playing a major role hasn't it uh not all <laughs> that long ago uh, there were one trillion dollars in assets in private equity. Now it's ten trillion dollars. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So just for the listeners, you know what public equity means? If you go out and invest in IBM, say that that stock trades on the public markets, anybody can buy that stock mm -hmm. if you've got the money. Private equity 
is 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 holding equity investments in companies that are not publicly traded and it's really only the big players that can that can play that game you know the pension funds and foundations and family offices and colleges and, and universities and colleges and universities and this is where the big players are going yeah harvard university in 2021 it had 67% of its assets in private equity and hedge funds 53 right? billion dollar endowment Yes, right. And so and and unfortunately, institutional investors are in the game of pretending that their gains just fall from the sky. You invest in private equity, you get higher gains. Oh, isn't that isn't that wonderful? And nobody's looking at the consequences. But but private, you know, when the fossil fuel companies are being urged by progressive investors to get out of their dirtiest assets. Right. And many of them have. They're selling off their dirtiest oil fields. But guess who's buying those? It's private equity. And private equity, in some cases, is tripling production. So it's 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 not enough to get the big oil companies to divest their assets. We we need to actually change the game itself. We need to we need to rein in private equity. And, and so let, let me give you another example of private equity. You know, we knew that um a, a lot of people lost their homes in the 2008 meltdown. Well, guess who's buying those homes? It's it's private equity. It's out there in, in Cincinnati, for example. Big investors in private equity are buying one in five homes. They're raising rents. They're doing aggressive evictions and neglecting maintenance. That's how they're profiting for their investors. And um, so private equity is... I, I call it the apex predator right yeah. now. It's it's creating a, a lot of problems that we, we need to start seeing and, and, and talking about. Well, you report that the Ford Foundation had nearly $1 billion in private equity in 2020. And you say that even if every private equity manager and corporate board manager would be abducted by aliens, the <laughs> system would continue to go unchanged. Yeah, this is... I think what I have learned over 30 years, Leonard, is that this really isn't about blaming some CEOs or blaming even billionaires or the directors of, of you know, foundation boards or, you know, we want to blame individuals. We want to think there are bad guys out there. And there are. <laughs> there are plenty of bad guys around. But it's the system. It's the rules of the system that we need to look at. Um, and, and, and change because they're what's driving this. And, and a lot of the system, and by that I mean, uh, you know, the way that foundations invest, the way that universities in, invest and hit our pension funds, it's on, it's on autopilot. You, you know, you just go, oh, well, we're going for the maximum returns. We're just going to do what our investment advisors tell us. And they're not looking, these trustees are not looking at the impact of their of their actions. And so the whole thing is, is on autopilot. When did this system start developing? Uh, because, you know, it is not really covered at all, despite the power of it, by the mass media. No, we're really missing. We're really missing what's going on, Leonard. And this is why I was driven to, to put, put out this book. And Have you spoken to Rachel Maddow? <laughs> I haven't. I, I haven't. Why don't you call her up and tell her you should have me on. Um, but yeah, so a lot of it was unleashed in the 1980s and that was the Reagan Thatcher moment. Mm -hmm. You know, Reagan said morning in America and he crushed the unions and he let loose 
capital. And so that that was when the system really went into overdrive. And we don't even have the metrics to see what's going on, Leonard. Let me give you two quick examples. One is, you know, we talk about GDP, which is gross domestic product. Mm -hmm. And that means just the flow of income and spending, right? You and I, we get a salary if we're lucky, we spend money. You know, that's what GDP tracks. But there's this other sphere of financial assets, which we can picture is like a sphere sitting on top of GDP. And it, these two these two circles used to be equal back in the 50s when I was a kid, right? Financial assets were roughly equal to GDP. Now they're five times GDP. And yet financial assets, the, the way our system is built, they have to grow every quarter every year and they do it by extracting they extract from the real economy so that's one metric that we don't have uh, the ratio of financial assets to gdp that's what's really happening in our economy that's where all the power is five times gdp okay that's one metric here's another one you know we talk about unemployment and how low it is but what we don't look at is the quality of jobs mm -hmm. i mean if you if you are a freelancer and you happen to have one one freelance job in the week that they're tracking your numbers they say oh you're employed you might have nothing the rest of the year you know so what we need to look at is is contingent employment or or what i call you know the throwaway workforce people who are or part-time or or um, working for a temp agency or they're driving Uber or, you know, self-employed, all these really insecure jobs, that is now 40% of jobs in our economy, 40%. Wow. And when, that, again, that's a number we're not talking about, and we should be. How... Um... How were the Great Recession of 2008 and the COVID pandemic used by private equity to generate more wealth for their clients? Because you opened yeah. the book with a discussion of the mask mandates during the COVID pandemic. And I wondered why you would begin there and how it relates to what we're discussing, wealth supremacy. Well, actually, I opened the book, um, Leonard, talking about water and how uh, hedge funds are out there buying buying water rights because they know water is going to be scarce and, um, and uh, they want to profit from it. They want their investors to get rich by charging the rest of us exorbitant rates for water. And, and meanwhile, this is an area where we already have a democratic economy. 85% of Americans are um, already served by municipally owned water systems. And that means that that's the dreaded government ownership, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're taught to fear government ownership when actually when you have your cities in charge of, of city water, you have you have better service and you have lower rates. We don't we don't want big capital in charge of our water. So so you asked how are how are is private equity you know benefiting from the 2008 crisis? Well, they're out there buying the homes that were foreclosed and um, and uh, like I said, raising raising the rents and, and forcing people out of their homes if they're a little bit late. But, you know, here's an example of how we can do it differently. And that is in Cincinnati, 
the city financing arm, it's called the Port of Port Authority, stepped in and bought back 200 homes from private equity. And they said, we don't want, we want to stop the extraction from our community. And so they bought these 200 homes. They floated a bond in order to do it. And they're, they're keeping the rent stable. They're catching up on neglected maintenance and they're training renters in how to become home owners. And this is an example of keeping wealth local, keeping wealth in broad based hands and, and having uh, e even investing and owning decisions be aimed at benefiting all of us and not the few. So this is really a state by state situation, isn't it? Well, you can it, you can you can begin building the democratic economy at the city level, at the state level, uh, at the federal level. You can begin at any level. Uh, our organization. The Democracy Collaborative, we, we created a, a, a phrase called community wealth building. We, we developed this phrase back in 2005, and it's a form of local economic development. And it's about transforming communities based on them having ownership and control of their own assets. And we we drew up a plan for Chicago that's moving there. We're 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 doing work in Amsterdam. We're uh, considering work in Los Angeles. So there are people, city cities all over the world are interested in community wealth building because they know their people are in trouble, and and they're looking for alternatives. So cities are a good place for this work to begin. And we um, worked with some folks in uh, Preston. England, which is a, a, you know, was a beat down Rust Belt city there, and they used community wealth building. Their city council adopted this, and they actually moved the needle on, on poverty and unemployment in that city by keeping wealth local, having um, worker cooperatives. They started a local bank that's, that's city-owned. And they had their anchor institutions like hospitals and schools and universities buying from locally owned firms. So they're keeping wealth local. It, it, it works, uh, Leonard. Yes. And you can do it at the state level and the federal level as well. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Enjoying my conversation with Marjorie Kelly. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, Wealth Supremacy, How the Extractive Economy and the Bias Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises. Uh, to do that, go online to give to WBAI.org or Call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or on the phone, 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Marjorie Kelly, whose latest book is 
wealth supremacy, how the extractive economy and the biased rules of capitalism drive today's crisis. It's published by Barrett Kohler. She's a distinguished senior fellow at the Democracy Collaborative, which is a national research and developmental lab for a democratic economy. Um, do you get a lot of support? We we do. We're, we see a, just a tremendous amount of interest, f- for example, in in uh, community wealth building. I uh, and one of the uh, colleagues that I work with has helped the entire nation of Scotland hmm. to adopt community wealth building as its economic development model. Every county in Scotland will be drawing up a community wealth building plan. And we just recently brought the Minister of Community Wealth Building from Scotland. He came and he toured Cleveland, uh, where we helped build the Evergreen Cooperatives. It's a network of, uh, it used to be three worker-owned cooperatives. Now I think it's nine. And um, so he, and we're doing more work in Cleveland and he, he came and he visited there and he visited Chicago. So yeah, th- this, there's tremendous interest in this work, Leonard. It's really, it's really catching on. Well, Britain has had its series of problems, but if you get sick in England, you don't impoverish yourself by seeing a doctor. So there are, uh, there, there are other systems that work well. Yes, thank you for that example. It's a great one, you know. And the the national health system of uh, of of England, which is is so successful, it's one of the biggest and most successful in the world. It began as a community experiment. There were um, uh, people in a small community said, you know, we don't have enough health care. They started a a, a collective enterprise, and then that model was so successful it inspired the creation of of, of a national uh, health system. So you know this stuff that seems small, Leonard, or seems uh, you know marginal, can actually find its way to being the, the next system. I mean, you know, I think an example of that is solar power. I mean, I remember back in the 70s when it was only hippies who had solar panels on the roof of their houses. It was this fringy, you know, wild thing. And now now solar is 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 growing by by leaps and bounds. So stuff that starts on the margin, that's where the interesting stuff always starts. Uh, And it, it can really take off and grow. You know, it's taking off and growing when you see commercials for solar power on television. Exactly. Yeah. You compare what's happening in this country to what happened during colonization in the United States and what was called Indian removal without acknowledging the violence and the atrocities that were part of it. Yeah, I have a whole chapter. And this is, um, I I hope, I I think what makes the book kind of fun to read is one of the things that, you know, I talk about how language carries bias. It carries the bias toward capital, the bias toward wealth. In the same way that, you know, language um, has carried uh, racial bias mm. and, and gender bias. I mean, you know, this whole idea that we're, we divide ourselves into whites and blacks. Black is, is a made up is a made up category. People skin color is all over the place. I mean, people in Africa 
100 years ago didn't think of themselves as blacks they thought of themselves as nigerians or you know uh, egyptians i mean they weren't so this a whole that's an invented concept right the same thing we used to talk about mankind and and you know women were just subsumed into that mm. well we have this a, a bias toward capital and wealth in our language of economics i mean think about for example how we talk about wealthy people have greater worth than the rest of us what is your net worth well you know that conveys the message that wealthy people are, are more valuable than other people who might be deadbeats if you can't uh, pay your bills and we which of course is an insulting concept i mean when you are driving people out of the economy and they can't get good jobs it's not their fault and yet we blame the victim in the same way that we used to blame uh, the victim with with women's issues and so the way we think about the economy the way we talk about it the language we use th this is uh, where bias lives is are women's issues still a factor? I know you mentioned race, and that obviously is still a factor in this process. Well, I look to feminism as an example of, of how to start a successful movement. I mean, people will say to me, um, you know, what, what do you do with people who disagree with you or people who, you know, don't don't want to see you know, fossil fuels shut down because it hurts their community. You know, I say, well, you don't you don't start a feminist revolution by arguing with your dad. Right. We, we need to talk to each other. We need to talk to kindred spirits. I think that's important. You know, so so how does feminism tie in with this this notion of wealth supremacy and bias? Well, I think that 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 women's view of the world is much more inclined toward what I call a democratic economy or, you know, social justice. I mean, you have um, uh, women are known to be much more interested in impact investing, impact using your investing dollars for good. Also, also young people and millennials are also drawn to impact investing. So I think these are among the communities that no, we need to run the economy differently and, and just instinctively uh, understand that. Isn't most of the debt owed by households and government? Um, you say the problem is in the system to maximize profits for capital at any cost and in any way. Yes, when you look at financial assets in aggregate, uh, and this is all stocks, bonds, debts of various kinds, and, you know, about two thirds of it is, is actually debt. And what we don't, we tend not to realize uh, that, okay, on the one, do you ha one hand, you have families struggling under debt, and medical debt, college debt, credit card debt, mortgage debt. You know, a lot of households are just, this is a burden on their shoulders. And, but all of that debt is owned by someone so there's someone who you are paying to, and it's it's often indirect and it's hard to trace. Um, but when we see that financial assets are held primarily by the 1%, really what we're doing with our debt payments is we're swelling uh, the pocketbooks of, of, the, of the wealthy. There are a few people who are receiving the income, and there are a whole lot of us who are paying paying that debt.
And it's important that we understand that's what's happening. My guest is Marjorie Kelly, whose latest book is Wealth Supremacy, How the Extractive Economy and the Biased Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises. It's published by Barrett Kohler. Uh, This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and WBAI.org. Show is Leonard Lopate at large. You say that you doubt that taxation, minimum wages, unions, regulations, and antitrust will solve the problems. So, what would solve the problem? Yes, Leonard, we tend to have a 1930s idea of of how to make the economy more just. I mean, that was, you know, back I mean, we're the- still recovering from the the Great Recession, the Depression. <laughs> well, I mean, the Depression. That, yeah, right. The 30s and 40s, that was when, you know, we had a great, we had a new deal. And then after that, in the 60s and 70s, we had some good regulation of water and so forth. So there have been um, the things that we have attempted to make capitalism more fair. But what I have seen over 30 years is how most of that has been overridden, right? Like you create, um, uh, wage and hour laws, and then companies just send their jobs overseas, where you create super fund laws that makes, uh, say, for example, chemical manufacturers liable for the millions of tons of waste they were dumping into water systems here. Well, they just sent their factories to China. So now they're dumping into the oceans mm-hmm. off of China. And so th- this is where where I say the problem is in the system. The problem is in the, this idea that no amount of wealth is ever enough. But aren't that, some workable economic models already in place, such as public ownership of vital services, worker-owned oh, businesses? Uh, could yes, they that, lead to that, broader system changes? Well, so by system change, I, one of the key points of system change is who owns things, right? So we can't have the 1% owning everything. We need we need public ownership. We need worker ownership. We need you know, families owning uh, you know, their homes and a piece of where they work. So yes, we need democratic ownership, right? And we already have it in water, for example, we need, we need to hold on to it. And there are emerging examples of, of worker ownership and community ownership. And this is what I've been tracking for 30 years as a journalist, Leonard. I've been writing about this and working for this. Um, I mean, one of my colleagues, uh, for example, is working for public ownership of pharmaceuticals hmm. and and the state of California has recently uh, enacted the steps to have the state owning and controlling production of insulin. So we are, we definitely are making progress. Well, what rights do workers have in countries like Norway and Sweden? Are they role models? Yes, and thank you for bringing that up. I mean, in this country, it's, it's, uh, we, we don't have a large unionized presence, which, which we should have. But in the Scandinavian countries, you do have unions that might be 60% of the economy. Or, and, and in Germany, you have what's called co-determination, where unions um, have a role in corporate governance decisions. So they have boards that they sit on and they have a voice in in major corporate decisions. And we know this is working because Germany is, is a powerhouse. But even as we bring some sectors under public ownership and control, you believe 
private enterprise remains vital. Why? Um, how would you suggest private business needs to evolve? Yeah, thank you for this. And this is work that I've done, again, over many years. My first book, The Divine Right of Capital, back in 2001, was all about how corporations are designed to benefit the few and how they could be redesigned uh, to benefit uh, the public good and, and, and workers included. So I've been working for this, and, and you know, I, I'm happy to say that that, that book um, inspired the creation of the B Corp movement. And B Corps are they're also called benefit corporations, and they have an now, internal... Those are the B corporations, the benefit corporations? Yes, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah, B corporations and benefit corporations. And that's where companies say, no, our purpose is not to maximize returns for shareholders. Our purpose is to serve the public good, to serve many stakeholders. And there's about 6,000 uh, B corporations uh, in the U.S. and around the world now. That's an example of how corporations can evolve. Also, worker ownership, and this is something else that I've been I've been working for for many years. Uh, my colleagues and I helped to design the fund for employee ownership at the Evergreen Cooperatives in Cleveland, where this now is housed and run. And they're they're out there buying companies in Cleveland and converting them to worker ownership and using investor dollars to do it. Um, and there is there's a growing movement for more worker ownership and the role of capital in that. So so how would this start to come together to see corporations evolve? Well, Elizabeth Warren has floated legislation that she calls the Accountable Capitalism Act. And under this, big companies with a with billion dollars in revenue would need to take on a, a federal charter instead of the state charter that companies now have. And under this charter, they would have to be like a B corporation. They would have to have these this broad legal mandate to serve the public good, and they would have to reserve 40% of board seats for workers. And it's, it's an example. It's a kind of a visionary idea that helps us see, you know, companies don't have to remain the way they are. They can evolve and they should. And I would say also we need more public ownership. We need public ownership of water worldwide. Forests, 15% of forests are controlled by indigenous people or by community. There groups. are community land trusts, aren't there? And, and community land trusts, that's another model of, of the kind of, of the way ownership needs to evolve. Absolutely. And then there are city and state owned banks. So, um, are they successful? Are they appreciated in the areas that they operate in? Well, there's really only one that exists right now, but it's an important one, and it's the Bank of North Dakota. Hmm. And uh, it's been around for 100 years, and in the 2008 meltdown, this bank kept lending when the big banks froze up and stopped lending and really hurt hurt small and medium-sized businesses. But that bank, which it's owned by the state, and it exists, it exists to serve the state, not to max, not to extract from it, right? Which is what banks ought to be. And it has been so successful, it's it's inspired a whole movement for state-owned banks and city-owned banks 
Um, and there are a number of cities and states that are in exploratory mode in creating these kind of banks. And so all of these, and thank you for bringing up these models, Leonard. So what, what we're saying here is public ownership of water, you know, indigenous ownership of forests. You have uh, state-owned banks, worker-owned firms, community land trusts. These are the models of a democratic economy, and they work. They've been proven to work. I mean, we can, we don't have to have investors owning everything. Uh, there, there are other models, and we can move toward them in, in a systematic way. Well, people look to taxation, minimum wages, unions, regulation, antitrust as a way to fix capitalist, capitalism's shortcomings. Um, are you dubious about that? I think we need all of that. I don't think we want to discard regulation or, or certainly we don't want to discard unions. We want more unions. If, if you want to join a union, it should be as easy to join as it is to. I'm a member of a union. Part of it's on strike and part isn't. I'm on uh, a member of uh, SAG-AFTRA. Well, good for you. We need we need more unions. And and by the way, your station is community owned, yes. right? That one hundred percent. We rely a hundred percent on listener support. We don't uh, take any money from any uh, from government or anything else, which allows us to be completely free speech. And that's probably why I'm on your station, <laughs> Leonard. Because you you know you can tell the truth because you don't exist to maximize extraction by investors. You you exist uh, to serve your community and, and you're owned by your community. So I do hope that listeners will support this because this is a, a perfect example of a democratic economy of the kind of models that we need. Now, what about uh, in the few moments we have left? Uh, you share the story of the Biden administration's debt relief plan for black farmers that was ultimately um, kind of destroyed by banks and fought by dark money organizations. Why were they against the plan? And how might a democratic economy approach issues like that? Yes, um, I, I think the you have, right. You have one and a half minutes. Okay. Yes, bankers don't want to have to see loans paid off and, and reissue them. So they they were petulant about that mm. about that uh, move by Biden, which I think was an important move. But here's an example of 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 how um, debt relief can be handled, and that is there's a group in uh, Boston, Blue Hub, and it it, it it's um, a community oriented lending institution. It has gone out and bought the mortgages of homeowners who were underwater and were about to lose their homes. Mm -hmm. It renegotiated with banks. Uh, it brought down the principal about 30%, put that mortgage back on the, the same home with the same buyers under more uh, fair terms. And so that's how we could have handled the 2008 meltdown, with finance serving us and not just extracting from us. Anything you want to add in the last minute? I love this conversation, Leonard. I uh, thanks for having me on, and I hope that uh, um, that people will look at this book. It's it's. Um, I think we can we can make a difference if, if we act together. And the book is Wealth Supremacy: How the Extractive Economy and the Biased Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises. It's published by Barrett Kohler. 
Thank you, Marjorie Kelly, for being our guest today. It's been a real pleasure talking with you, even well, though <laughs> even though it's a disturbing subject. <laughs> it is, but there's also some hope if we if we act together. Thanks, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you. As Marjorie Kelly pointed out, we are totally supported by our listeners. And so we are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so in, in this time of crises where we are really struggling to survive to make a contribution at whatever level you're, you're, they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else even though today's topic is really important you haven't heard much about it if anything at all on other media, that's uh, I see that as WBAI's role in life, and I hope that you'll help us continue to do this sort of thing. Um, as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Wealth Supremacy by Marjorie Kelly. So why not make that call now at 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero, or go online to give to wbai.org. That's two one two two zero nine twenty nine fifty, or give and the number two wbai.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five dollars a month, whatever you're comfortable with, for as long as you wish. It allows us to plan for the future, and uh, we be happy to send a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants. It allows us to be completely free speech radio, as I said. If this show is a part of your daily routine, why not keep it going for someone who's just discovering us? Again, the number... 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org We are the only station in the New York area that uh, is completely supported by our listeners and your support is tax deductible and I hope you can join us again tomorrow. We'll see you then.